You're listening to a sermon from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. For more sermons or information about our church, please visit ktnnaz.org or like Ketchikan Naz on Facebook. All right, children, you are dismissed. I'll remind parents in case you didn't see the email or the post on Facebook. This message is PG-13. Um, Kids 10 and up with discretion, parents. Uh, We're going to be talking about the persecution of the church in no uncertain terms. Um, and, uh, and there, there will be some discussion of what that will look like and what that has looked like. So, um, I'll let you guys guard your kids' hearts and minds, uh, as you see fit. Lesson downstairs, I think is on the Ukraine, if I remember correctly. Uh, kids are going to be, uh, it's G, uh, and they get snacked. So, um, half of us are gone. Do you know that half of us are kids on a Sunday morning? Uh, you know how awesome that is? It's amazing. Uh, I absolutely love it, and uh, and I think Jesus absolutely loves that as well. So as they are heading downstairs, if you guys would flip to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, that's where we are today. Today's message is entitled, No Turning Back, uh, and it is, uh, it's a good message, but it's a hard message as we look at what Jesus says about the call of discipleship and what it's going to look like and mean for those disciples, and not just those disciples, but that anyone who would claim the name of Christ down through the generations is going to face this, and, uh, and, and he, has some, he has some very strong words for his children uh, this morning. Um, in, in chapter 5 of Matthew, which we were in, I don't know how long ago, uh, a while ago, uh, we read from the Sermon on the Mount. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is really interesting. The more I study the book of Matthew, the more I find that the Sermon on the Mount is just an outline for the rest of the book of Matthew. You read the Sermon on the Mount and you're like, that's a great sermon. That's a wonderful series of messages. And then you go on to other things in Matthew. But that's not true. The Sermon on the Mount is like Jesus' condensed version, like the Cliff Notes version of what's going to happen the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And so we find in Matthew chapter 5, Verses 10 through 12, it says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So rejoice and be glad, because your reward in heaven is great, for the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. So Jesus talked about persecution, then he went on to other things in the Gospel of Matthew. But now he comes back to persecution. And in Matthew chapter 10, he kind of hits it home. Remember last week, he had gathered the 12 disciples and he sent them out in groups of 12. And he said, don't take anything with you. Short missions trip. Go to the people that you already know. Jews go to choose first. Then we'll go to the Gentiles later on. But first, just go to your hometown. Go to the people you know. Have some ease of ministry. Enjoy the fellowship. Come back and we'll talk about things. But then he continues this way. And this message that he gave them, where did this come from, um, wasn't, wasn't for this first mission trip. This was a forewarning for what was to come later in the missions trip realm for the disciples and for those who would follow down the line. Starting in Matthew 10, we'll go verse 16, and we're going to go through, uh, say, verse 33 this morning. And it says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So I want you to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Beware of men, 
For they're going to deliver you over to courts and they're going to flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. To bear witness before them and to the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, don't be anxious about what you're going to say or how you are going to speak. Because what you are going to say will be given to you in that hour. It's not you who speak. It's the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and put them to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? See, Jesus is saying, listen, if you follow me and you go on this missions trip and you claim me and you claim this life, you will be handed over for judgment. It's not like you may be handed over for judgment. You will get handed over for judgment. You will be put in front of the king. You will be tried for heresy. You will be persecuted. You will be put to death. You will be handed over and betrayed by your family. There's no question in Jesus' mind. This is going to happen to those people who follow him. Well, that's uplifting. So then he continues because he wanted to give some encouragement here. So have no fear of them for nothing that is covered... For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, here in our council, say it boldly in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. Saying don't have any fear to speak these things. And don't fear those who kill the body. I.e., your body's probably going to get killed. Don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than the sparrows. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father in heaven. Um, So Jesus has some really strong words here. Um, This isn't like the simple, let's go and tell people about Jesus and everything is happy kind of ministry. Remember, there was a turning point at the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 when Jesus realized something is going to change now in the world because in order to atone for the sins of the world, things are going to have to get dangerous for me and for my followers. And my followers need to be aware of that so that they can enter into it with the right frame of mind and the boldness of the Holy Spirit. And so he tells them, straight up, I'm sending you on a mission. You're probably going to die. But don't worry about that, because I've got your back, and there's something more important than the body you have, and it's the soul that's within you. So overall, that's an encouraging message, right? Because there's a greater, there's a greater purpose than just this physical life. There's something beyond the mortal that we have. Um, and... I jumped right ahead here. There we go. There we go. Okay, so Jesus um, 
Jesus, in this first couple of verses, he talks about being persecuted. You will be, these are key verses, handed over, flogged, dragged, death, persecuted. You will have to flee. Those are all in what I just read this morning. If someone hired you for a job, and this was the job description, how would you feel? Uncomfortable with the terms, right? Okay, but he follows it up with, don't have any fear. You get to proclaim the good news. Don't fear death. You are valuable. You get to acknowledge Christ. Those sound like good things. But you can't have this part of the job description without this part of the job description, Jesus is saying. They go hand in hand. If you do this, this is going to happen. Does that make sense? Um, So it's all well and good, right? We read this and we think that's great for the disciples. They were living in the time when things were changing, the turning point. Big revolution in Jesus' day. Things were going from the old system to the new system. Yeah, there were going to be some hiccups along the road. Some people were going to lose their life because they proclaimed this new system, this new covenant, this new Jesus, this Messiah, the one who was changing everything. Yes, of course they were going to struggle with it because they were butting up a culture and a society that didn't love Jesus, that didn't know Jesus, that couldn't engage Jesus because of the hindrance of the law or of false idols. So, of course, the disciples were going to have these problems. And have these problems they did. The disciples, uh, save for Judas who hanged himself because he betrayed the Lord, um, the, uh, the 12 disciples, if you include uh, the one who was added in later, uh, they were all persecuted strongly for their faith, 11 to the point of death. Um, the 12th nearly to the point of death, uh, but he died of old age because God provided for him. Now, here's how the disciples worked out. I'm just going to list everything that happened to the 12 disciples. Okay? This is the summary of the 12 disciples um, living all of this out. Stoned, beheaded, scourged, imprisoned, murdered by a mob, skull beaten in with a club, crucified sideways, drawn and quartered, crucified upside down, regular crucified, beaten, run through with a spear, hung on a tree. And those are all of the disciples except for John. John wrote the Gospel of, Re- or the, the Gospel of Revelation, basically, the, the last book in the scriptures that we have. They tried to kill him. They boiled him in oil. And he said, is that all you got? And it frustrated the ruler so much so that he pulled him out of the oil, threw him onto Patmos, which was a jailed community where he couldn't get off, isolated him on Patmos, and that's when Jesus appeared to him in person and he got to write the book of Revelation. He died of old age. Save for John, who died of old age. The disciples lived this out. They preached the gospel without shame, but they endured being handed over, being flogged, dragged, death in varieties of ways. And so we read the scriptures and we go, man, they really dug in. They, they figured it out. They lived this life. They followed the calling. They endured the things that Christ has called them to endure. I'm so glad that that portion of Christian life is over because now we don't have to endure that anymore because they did it. They carried it on their backs, and now we don't have to anymore because life is different. But that's not exactly true. So there's this book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it. I'm getting a few head nods. It's not light reading. Um, 
And, uh, and I've read it cover to cover. It's really good reading, okay? And what it does is chronicle Christian martyrdom from the disciples down through the Middle Ages. It goes even to the 1800s. It ends in 1819, okay? Um, and it's historical account of all of the people who lived the life that Jesus talked about in this passage and then suffered and died for it. A lot of people are in this book. There's a few things that I want to point out to you just to make the point that this, what Jesus talked about, was not isolated to the Bible days. But this is true for all generations down through time. Um, in, the, in the 4th century, so right around 300, 304, depending on your historical count, in France, there was a guy named Victor. Um, he was of a Christian family. He lived in France in a town I can't pronounce because I don't speak French. And during the night, because he was really well off, um, during the night, he visited the afflicted. Um, he hung out with the weak people. He did pious work, which, according to this account, he couldn't do in the daytime for his own safety because of the position he held in town. He spent his fortune relieving the distresses of poor Christians. He was at length, however, seized by the Emperor Maximum, who ordered him to be bound and dragged through the streets. During the execution of this order, he was treated with all manner of cruelties and indignities by the enraged populace. Remaining inflexible, his courage was seemed like obstinacy. So being uh, by order of the emperor, he was stretched upon the rack. And while he was on the rack, he turned his eyes towards heaven. And he prayed to God to give him patience so he could un, un, you know, endure the torture. After when he underwent the tortures with an admirable fortitude, after which the executioners were tired inflicting tortures upon him, he was conveyed to a dungeon. In his confinement, he converted the jailers named Alexander, Felician, and Longinus. The emperor heard about their conversion. He put them immediately to death, and they were beheaded. Victor was then again put to the rack, unmercifully beaten with the sticks and sent to prison again then a third time examined concerning his religion he persevered in his principles a small altar was brought to him and he was commanded to offer incense upon it he was filled with indignation and he boldly stepped forward and overthrew the altar and the idol with his feet so enraged was the emperor who was present that he ordered the foot which had kicked the altar to be cut off and then victor was thrown into a mill and crushed to pieces with the stones. That was about in 300 AD in France. Now, I could continue to read 300, 400, 500, 600, and I'll tell you, the, t the older the times go, the worse the torture got. Because the older humanity gets, the more depraved we get. The more ways we can find to harm and to kill and to torture. Now, if we jump forward in time a little bit, um, there was uh, an unnamed man um, in the region of Assam in India. Um, in the 1800s, missionaries were just starting to reach the worlds. They were going off in their ships, and they were, um, they were reaching countries as of yet uh, Christianity had not reached. And in the 1800s, I think about 1804, 1805, was the first missionary to India. 
Now, there's a whole lot of history that goes into the first missions to India. Needless to say, missionaries had gone to India in early 1800s. Now, a lot of the area of uh, India that they went um, were tribes that were un, um, unreached by the modern world. Some of these tribes were vicious headhunting tribes. So missionaries who would go to the headhunting tribes would meet a fate um, wherein their heads would be removed and hung on the tribe's walls. Um, in these tribes, the more heads you had on your wall, the more masculine you were, the more strength you had, the more courage you had. It was seen as a sign of power and authority. Well, um, there was uh, a missionary who went to this region in India named Assam, and it was dominated by Hinduism and the most vicious headhunters in the area. Um, and uh, he converted one family in this community, one, one family, a man and a woman and their two sons. Now, uh, the missionary since then went and he moved on. He spent, he ministered and then he left. And this family was brought to trial before the headhunting community. Um, he, uh, he was told by the leaders of the tribe I want you to renounce your faith or we'll kill your sons in front of you. Now, when this man had come to faith, and it was a Welsh missionary who'd led him to the Lord, when he came to faith, he was, he was just filled with love for Christ. He wrote a song for Christ um, using a tune that was common to the region of a psalm. To this day, the, the tune and the lyrics are called a psalm. We would know it by another name. You'll recognize it in a minute. But the tune is called a psalm given by the region that it was written. It's a typical Indian tune, or it used to be. And as he was faced with this decision in the center uh, area of this tribal council, they said, recant of Christianity. Renounce Jesus and we'll spare your children. Proclaim Jesus and we'll kill them in front of you. And he thought for a moment... And then he, having no other, no other way in his mind, he quoted the first line of the song that he wrote. I've decided to follow Jesus, and there's no turning back. And so with that, he watched with his own eyes his two sons killed. Then they said, okay, obviously you didn't love your children. They said, recant of Christ, or we'll kill your wife. Now, the historical account says he and his wife looked at one another. They were both believers. And they said together, the second verse, though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. And they killed his wife. And so then they said one more time, surely you will save your own life. Recant of Christ, and we will spare your life. And they took aim at him. And about this time, the Welsh missionary was coming back into town, and he, over, he saw this happen. This is how the account came. He said he saw the man stand up in front of the tribe with the spears pointed at him. And he said, the cross before me and the world behind. No turning back. And they killed him. 
They buried the family. And life went on as usual in that town for a period of time. But then something happened. The tribe's leader stewed over this experience. Never had he seen anything like this before. He had heard the testimony of this man. I will follow Jesus, no turning back. The cross before me, I will not turn back. Though no one follow, I will not turn back. And it bothered him. It bothered him. Why why would he show such strength facing death? How did that match up with his strength in number of heads on a wall? And he wrestled with it, and he came to the idea that surely the man that he had killed had a greater strength than he had, and he converted and gave his life to Christ. Then he led his entire tribe to follow Christ. He realized that true strength was found in Christ alone, no turning back. And the whole village came to follow Christ. This story was taken by this Welsh missionary and brought through many cultures, many tribes. It made its way eventually down through time to Billy Graham, where the song became famous, the Billy Graham Crusades, I Will Follow Jesus. You know, today... We have very similar events going on. I'm sure you all are following modern events. You read CNN, you read the news, you follow it. In Mosul, in the Middle East, there is this great war that is going on. A week ago, uh, almost you know, eight or, eight or nine days ago now, Christians were ordered to leave the town of Mosul, right? Um, they were ordered to evacuate because their faith would no longer be permitted in this town. So they were either to pay a fee for protection, evacuate, or face death. Um, now, Mosul, in case you didn't know, it's Iraq's second largest city. Okay? Um, until last week, by, when it was captured, um, it was the, one of the largest Christian centers in Iraq. You know it from the news, you recognize its name, you know it's in the Middle East, okay? Um, And you know that there has been fighting between Christian and extremists there for the control of the city. But do you know the history of this city? This was fascinating. Do you know what that city is? That's the city of Nineveh. The city of Mosul, modern day, is the city of Nineveh, wherein... They were unrepentant. Jonah went to the town and said, they're sinners. They deserve to die. We studied this a few months back, right? God worked with Jonah through the course of a whale. Okay? Jonah went back to Nineveh, preached to the gospel. The whole city was converted, right, by one man's testimony. And then down through time, from that point forward, Nineveh slash Missoula was Christian. Now, first, it was kind of Old Testament Judaism, but um, in the first century A.D., they became a Christian nation and have been a Christian place ever since until this past week when they were ordered out under penalty of death. Last count, numbers changed rapidly. You know, you read the news in the morning and the evening, things change. 500,000 people have fled. 95% of the Christians in that area have left, 5% have stayed. Um, 
Just this morning, I read uh, a news report that said the Islamic State released a video of their members beheading 50 young men, um, assassinating hundreds of others, and, um, and marking the homes of Christians. If you come back, we'll know who you are. This is the, um, the letter N in, in their language. Um, it stands for Nazarene. It means Christian. Where did Jesus come from? The town of Nazareth. We're going to mark you by where you claim your Lord is from. And if you come back for your stuff, we'll kill you. If we find you at this house, we'll kill you. Can't come back, is what they're saying. Now, this morning, um, I read that what we thought was true isn't really true. Um, The Christians who were ordered to pay a tax for safety, evacuate, or face the penalty of death, it's really um, face the penalty of death or run away. There is no tax that saves you. The news report that came out this morning said that those who had paid the fee, uh, they weren't killed immediately. Their, their wives were taken and made wives of the IS officials, raped repeatedly and tortured and then killed. The children were taken, beheaded, put in mass graves, buried alive, all in front of the fathers. And then the fathers were killed, executed. Their heads were put on stakes in a town square. This is going on because they claim the name of Christ. How does, how does Christianity survive this? How do Christians survive this? Where is the hope that Jesus talks about when he says, have no fear? When you read the news and you go, what? You've got to be careful when you Google what's going on in Mosul. Because you can see images you can't unsee. Okay? I saw images that I can't unsee. Now, reading about them is one thing, and seeing them is another thing. I have a four-year-old daughter, and I saw an image of a four-year-old girl that was no longer alive, and I'll spare you the details. And I don't get how that can happen, but we live in a world where it happens because Jesus said they're going to hate me and they're going to fight against me. And there is this war that's going on. And it's not against Islamic extremists and other religions. It's a bigger war than that. It's a war against Christ and the devil. And the devil works his ways in many things, but Christ is bigger. Christ is all authoritative. Christ has a plan. Christ knew this was going to happen. He said, I want to encourage you that even though this is going to happen, you might lose your life. There's still a greater hope in this. So have no fear when these things are going to happen to you. But how do we deal with this? In America, we don't have this problem. Like, nobody marks my home as a Christian. I mean, except us, because the sign of the Nazarene church is right out front. Like, okay, hello, that's where I live and I'm a Christian. It's not a problem causer, though, right? None of us are facing pay a tax or get out in America. 
We might face social opposition at times. It's awkward to share the gospel, right? I mean, we don't want to lose a friend. Um, Here's some little-known truths about persecution from people that have been persecuted. Sometimes you need to build yourself a cell. Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. A Chinese church leader spent 23 years in prison. He once said this to Christians who did not face persecution. I was pushed into a cell, but you need to push yourself into one. You have no time to know God. You need to build yourself a cell so that you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life. Know God. It's vital that we spend time with God to grow in him so we're prepared to stand strong whether we're facing life and death persecution or social persecution. What about this one? God keeps secrets. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways nor your ways, declares the Lord. The heavens are higher than earth. My ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There have been countless stories of persecuted Christians who have died without seeing the fruits of their labor, like the man in the region of Assam. But God knows all that has been and all that is to come, and our labor is not in vain, it's in his hands. Weakness is power. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. When I am weak, then I am strong, Second Corinthians says. An Egyptian Christian reflected on the way he was treated when he converted. In great suffering, you discover, you discover a different Jesus than you discover in normal life. Pain and suffering bring to the surface all of the weak points of your personality. And in my weakest state, I had an incredible realization that Jesus loved me all the more even right then. True empowerment doesn't come from human means but through Christ alone. Enduring can be greater than deliverance. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Persecuted Christians, no matter what country they come from, don't ask us to pray for the persecution to end. I've not once run across an account where someone would say, pray for me that this will end. Rather, they say, pray for me that I would have endurance to see this through to the end. Pray that I have the strength. Pray that I can have patience or peace. They're asking for prayers to face the trials in a way that is honoring to God. Like Victor, when he was on the rack and he said, give me endurance for this. So much so that God gave him endurance that the people got tired of inflicting torture on him. God can do great things. Endurance can be greater than deliverance. And extreme hurt requires extreme forgiveness. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then they cast lots for his garments while he was crucified. A Christian widow in Iran. I only had hatred in my heart for my enemies who murdered my husband. But one day a miracle happened. God taught me how to love my enemies. I had been praying for this, even though on the deepest level I didn't want it to happen. But gradually, through the process of ups and downs, God answered my prayer. 
The only way we can get through extreme hurt is by forgiving people like Christ forgave us. And prayer is the ultimate fellowship. Remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them. And those who are mistreated as if you yourselves are being mistreated. It's in Hebrews. Many persecuted Christians feel isolated and alone since they are unable to fellowship with other believers. Prayers from Christians halfway across the world have brought encouragement that fellowship in person can't be done in that moment. Prayer is vital, not only as a direct line of God, but as a way to encourage persecuted brothers and sisters across the world. 1 Corinthians 12 says, We are a body, and so when one part of our body suffers, the whole body suffers. When one member is lifted up, we are all to rejoice. The persecuted church and the church in the free world are not two separate churches. We are not two separate entities. The church in the persecuted world is suffering. And we need to support them and lift them up in prayer. And the church in the free world learns to Stand strong by looking at the witness and the testimony of those who are being persecuted. Christ, as the head of the body, uses both churches. We are not being persecuted. We are, we are living in freedom. To say anything we want about Christ, to do any kind of outreach we want, to read the Bible in a public location. Persecuted church, not so much. We have an obligation to bear with them, to fight for them in prayer and encouragement and need uh, that we can send, if we can, humanitarian aids in ways, and our denomination is helping out in a global scale. So what can you do? What can you do in a free country to stand with those people who are being persecuted, literally your brothers and your sisters, who are losing their children, losing their wives, losing their own lives, losing their homes, losing their country, never able to come back. And even in fleeing, some of the accounts say this, we have fled, but we have nowhere to go. We are ill and require medication, and we have no way to get to it. They can still die. One account said, my daughter is disabled and needs special care, and I can't take care of her. So though they have fled, the persecution exists as a byproduct. What can you do? What can you do in the free world? There's a few things that you can do. First, you need to make a choice to follow Jesus. That's the first and primary concern. When Jesus talks to his disciples, none of this makes sense unless you follow me first, unless you trust me first, unless you rely on me for the forgiveness of your sins and the strength to endure what's going to come. He said this, If you acknowledge me before man, I will acknowledge you before my Father. That's really good. If you deny me before man, I will deny you before my Father. That's really bad. Two eternal fates, one big cosmic battle. Christ says, make a choice and follow me. And this isn't the, this isn't the kind of sermon where you hear hey, joy and peace and all this happy stuff that when you talk about the Christian life, sometimes pastors give the wrong idea, the wrong idea that says if you come to Christ, everything's going to be fine. 
Jesus says, if you come to Christ, everything won't be fine. This is the real gospel. If you come to Christ, he is good. He is awesome. He's got everything in control. But you could still lose your life. But God is still good. Don't fear. That's the time that you say, I want to follow that Jesus. I want to follow him. And regardless of what comes, I'm going to partake in the life that he's offered me. I want to follow Jesus, no turning back. Maybe you already follow Jesus, but that whole no turning back part catches you. Maybe you need to dig a little deeper into what that might mean. Look at the persecuted church and go, I need more of Jesus. I know Jesus. I casually love Jesus. But if I was in that country and someone put a gun to my child's head and said, recant of my faith or I'll shoot your kid, and you question what your response will be, then maybe you need to choose Jesus this morning. Because i got to tell you, if someone put a gun to my kid's head, not an easy choice to look at my daughter and say, I love you and I'll see you on the other side. No turning back. We got to obey Jesus regardless of the cost. And then we got to pray for the persecuted church because people are making that choice. People are making that choice. In today's day and age, right now, in this very second, someone is making that choice. Someone is losing their life because they love Jesus. We need to pray for the church. Three websites, make a note persecution.com, otherwise known as Voice of the Martyrs, opendoorsusa.org, and onewiththem.com. These are three websites that chronicle the very currentest of current events in the persecuted church. You can go to their website. You can read their stories. You can go to the website. You can um, help them out. You can send aid. You can get an email in your inbox on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis that tells you what's going on and how to pray so that you don't forget. Because living in the free America, it's really easy to forget. And you look at CNN and you go, man, that's terrible. But then you go about your day and you don't pray for the body of Christ. Mark those websites down and visit them. Get the email. Make it a reminder. Pray for those who are giving their lives for Christ. And then the one thing that you can do in this country that they can't do in theirs is speak without fear. So someone says, I don't want to be your friend anymore. Who cares? Pray for them, but move on. What does Jesus say? Shake the dust off your feet. You're not going to lose your life here. So you can do what they can't. And if they do, they lose their life for. You can speak without fear. You can leverage your freedom in this country. We need to leverage our freedom in this country. So this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do these things. Maybe not the third. Maybe you need to go out from here and do the third somewhere else. But I want to give you the opportunity to say, no turning back. And to pray for the church. Um, we're going we're gonna to worship, but we're going to worship slightly differently to begin with. I've got just a music video we're going to play. 
It's that song, I Will Follow Jesus, No Turning Back. And as you hear the song and as you hear the words, and as you pray, because you should, ask Jesus to give you that no turning back attitude. And then we're going to worship with the worship team. Just two songs. This isn't an emotional thing. This isn't, please come. This is if you and God got some business to do. If you want to be the kind of Christ follower that Christ is talking about here, then just ask God to strengthen you. We've got communion elements, two places in the front and in the back. It's optional. This isn't that everybody has to take communion. But this is a, if I want to follow Jesus, no turning back, sometimes you want to receive the blood and the body which were spilled and broken for you. It's a simple meal of bread and wine. Tear off a piece, dip it in, and take communion. You can go to the prayer wall, and you can post a prayer for the church, for Masul, for the Christians that are unnamed, that are giving their lives. You can give praises for those people who have given their lives, that have planted seeds in doing so. You can pray for your own strength, for the families that you know that are lost. Come to the altar and pray. Go in the back and pray. You can sit in your chair. Prayer sheets are there too. What I want you to do, though, is not pass this time by. Leverage your freedom. Pray for the persecuted. Make a choice to follow Jesus. Revolutionize the United States with boldness, because we can. In this war against Christianity, we have one asset, and it's the fact that we have freedom. But the devil wants to use that freedom against us and make us complacent. I want to follow Jesus, no turning back, and that means no complacency. I need to follow Jesus. I'm going to pray when I'm done. We'll start the video. Lord, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the church that's persecuted because we know from statistics, which are boring but informative, that where the church is persecuted is where it grows. And where the church isn't persecuted is where it doesn't grow. In the United States, more churches are closing than are opening every year. Less pastors are going into the field than have been in previous years. More pastors are quitting the ministry than have ever been before. Christianity is on a decline. But Lord, we know in countries where the gospel is closed and it's illegal to preach the name of Christ. We know that the church is flourishing because there's something about opposition that makes us dig in deeper than ourselves to you and draw upon you and say, I will follow Christ, no turning back. And you do something with us in those moments, God. I pray that you would give us that same determination that our brothers and sisters have in Mosul, that our brothers and sisters have in China, that our brothers and sisters have all over the world, that you'd give us that fortitude, that you'd help us look upon them, pray for them, and encourage them through prayer. But that, Lord we would have that fire in our belly to reach the lost here, to make your name known here. And above all else, Lord, to have an individual faith between you and me where there's no turning back. It's not an option. I choose to follow you every day for the rest of my life. Strengthen me to do that, Father, through the ups and the downs because your word says have no fear. Not to fear the person who kills the body, because you've got my soul, Father. And I thank you for that. It's in your son's name that we pray.